everyone, and welcome to the Pensburg Podcast. For the first time, you are not joined by Garrett Bahana. He is not at quite a healthy scratch, but he'll be joining us next week. And instead, we have a great fill-in co-host today. I'm joined by a Pensburg contributor. He's at NHL and NBC. You can catch him all over the place. We got Adam Gretz with us. Adam, thanks for joining us. How are you? Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem. We are happy to have you. And this is episode number 39 of our Pensburg podcast. So with each episode, we like to look back in history through all the players who have worn the number of the episode and choose the best or one we like or one we might remember fondly. And I'm nicknaming episode 39 the waiver wire because it seems like pretty much everyone who has worn this number was pretty much been on waivers at some point. So I will choose a blast from the past, Luca Caputi, for my number 39 in Penguins history. Who do you got? I'm going to go with Joel Bouchard, just because I remember being at the first game he played with the Penguins after the Alexei Kovalev trade, and it was just a terrible game. He played a terrible game, and he scored this meaningless goal in like the last 30 seconds of a game they got blown out in. And I just remember the guy behind me like being excessively angry and screaming, well, now that he scored a goal, we'll forget about how terrible he was tonight. <laughs> so I'm going to go with Joel Bouchard. Joel Bouchard. I, I bet coming into the day you did not think you would have a Joel Bouchard memory, did you? No, I'm actually kind of surprised that I actually have a Joel Bouchard. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> that is also true. <laughs> Okay, as we get into the meat of our show, we'll look back at the week that was, and as usual, there's nothing ever routine or dull about the Penguins, who, since the last time we've had a podcast, have lost two games in embarrassing fashion at home over the weekend, and then bounced back to win on Tuesday. The first game against Washington, um, Nick Dowd scored 1 minute 52 seconds into the game. By the end of the first period, it was 3 to nothing. And early in the second period, Washington scored again. It was 4 to nothing, And at that point, this game was, for all intents and purposes, over. Adam, you were there. What is your takeaway from how the Penguins came out on another afternoon slow start against a rival? And what was, you know, that could have brought them right up to first place had the Pens won. But they didn't even come close. They no-showed. They made the Caps look good. And the Caps haven't been good. So what did you think about the Saturday afternoon game against the Caps? Well, anytime the Penguins play an afternoon game, I just assume they're going to be down one or one to nothing or two to nothing within the first ten minutes. And what's crazy about that is if you look at like their actual record in afternoon games, it's not bad. It's not as bad as it's made out to be. But they just always come out flat in those games. And this one, they never rebounded in. It was just a complete off day from the very beginning. Uh, they never really seemed all that competitive. And like you said, it's against the Capitals team that really hasn't been very good lately either. So uh, it's not so much the fact that they lost. It was just that they didn't seem to have anything going for them. I don't know if it's just because they fell down a couple goals early and just couldn't get going or if they just came out flat. I don't know what it was. But it was, you know, given the, the circumstances, probably their, their least impressive game of the entire season. You, the, the team that you're playing, uh, where they were in the standings, the importance of it, you expected a better, better performance that day, and they just had nothing from start to finish. Yeah, you're totally right there. I remember reading a Bob Grove tweet, and I can't remember how updated it is, but I think it's up to it was up to nine or ten games on afternoons that the Penguins 
give up the first goal. And you're right, they do have a good record, but for some reason that start is, uh, I, I, I can't, it like defies the, the logical explanation. At the Even point. the one afternoon game they did win this year, uh, the Boston game, they were, they were down 3 nothing in the first period in that game. I mean, it, 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 it's just it's crazy how how slowly they just come out in those games consistently. For sure. And as mentioned, the Washington games are always important, but that kicked off a string of 10 straight games against the Metropolitan Division. So what was disappointing, they kind of no-showed that and weren't competitive. The next day, they had another chance at an afternoon game at home against Carolina, in this game, lo and behold, they actually scored the first goal with Patrick Marlowe getting his first goal as a Penguin. And Evgeny Malkin gave him a 2-1 lead going into the second period. But then in that second, they just totally fell apart and gave the game away pretty much to Carolina, who rattled off five straight goals over the rest of the game. That one kind of got silly and out of hand as well, leading to a 6-2 loss. Um, for me in this game, what stood out is – I. I, I know Tristan Jerry's numbers have been down pretty much since the All-Star break, but this was the first game to me where I noticed like he was giving up big rebounds, and towards the end, like I don't know if he stopped or the team stopped, but that one got out of control, so that stood out for me. Uh, moving on to Sunday, another home loss, another another blowout, embarrassing type of loss. What did you take away from this one? I thought the turning point in that game was in the second period. The Penguins were up 2-1. to one. And Sidney Crosby made that incredible play behind the net where he passed the puck to himself, spun around, made everybody in Carolina look totally helpless. And he found Marcus Pedersen coming in all alone. Pedersen got a great shot, great chance, looked like the puck was taken in for the back of the net. Carolina's third string goalie makes a fantastic glove save. I mean, it's one of those plays where you can't blame anybody for the puck not going in. You just have to tip your cap to the other guy and say, hey, you beat me there. They were that close to making that a three-to-one game. And I think the way that game was going, if they get that goal, I think that game probably follows a very different path. Because that's a Carolina team that had been struggling. You had a chance to put them down by two goals, and they got a huge save at a big moment. And from that point on, they took over. And I just think that gave them some extra life. And I think that gave them an opportunity to stay in the game. And then once they got that lead, um, like you said, things just got a little weird at the end. I don't, I don't think the, 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 the game was as lopsided as the final score would indicate. Cause you know, those, I think three of those uh, six Carolina goals came in like the last five minutes. I think things just got a little crazy at the end, but I, I keep going back to that save on Pedersen um, as, as being the moment that game turned. And, you know, I don't know what happens if that puck goes in, but I just think that was that was where everything changed. Yeah, that that's something I remember what you're talking about with Crosby pulling the Milan craft, as we like to call it, banking it off the net to himself. That that was something. And there was another point. I think the score was two to two and Evan Rodriguez hit the post really yeah. hard. Oh, yeah. And then while shorthanded, and then the play went the other way, and yep. Jake Gardner blasted a power play goal late in the period. So that was another backbreaker. And I think that, too, especially on the long losing streak the Pens had, there'd be chances like I talked about with Rodriguez or like you talked about with Crosby that there'd be that one little thing, and it didn't quite go the Pens' way. And then you look up, and all of a sudden a goal or two goes in, and then they just lose. So do you chalk it up to kind of bad puck luck like that? That's kind of – the breaks aren't going their way right now? 
I think there's a there's a lot of that to an extent. I'm not going to write off all their recent problems as that, but I do think if a couple of breaks go their way differently and they get a couple extra wins, even just one or two extra wins over this most recent stretch, we're probably having a very different discussion about the state of this team right now. And that's kind of one of the things that I think we we lose track of in sports, especially hockey where over an 82-game season, you're going to have stretches where things just don't go your way. And I don't think yeah, – I, I know this is like a, a big-time sports cliche, and I'm usually opposed to those 100%. But I don't think you're ever as bad as you are or as bad as you look in your worst moments, and I don't think you're ever as good as you look in your best moments. And I, I think you just have to understand there's peaks and valleys over the course of a season, and the Penguins haven't really hit a valley – until this recent eight or nine game stretch here. And while they haven't always played winning hockey or good hockey during that stretch, I think there's been some games where they've, they've maybe deserved a better outcome or or things haven't gone their way. So I I definitely think there, there is an element of that there. And I think that game on Sunday was a pretty big example of it. Totally. I would agree there. And what I think is, is interesting now and it's definitely it's, obvious, it's easy to see the Penguins have hit that rut in the past 10 or so games, is the upcoming schedule. I, I don't know what to expect. Uh, they're on the road for the next two games at Columbus, at Carolina, and then home for the New York Islanders. All three teams are kind of in that playoff hunt, the playoff chase, jockeying for position. And I don't really know if the Penguins will build off the big 5-2 win over Jersey and Tuesday where it looked like Evgeny Malkin was just not going to let them lose. Do they build on that, do you think? Or do you expect the unexpected that we don't really know what they're going to do? Or where do you think the Pens go from here after kind of this uncertain week so far? Yeah, I I don't know, quite honest with you, because I I thought the game in New Jersey was, I mean, even though it was a a New Jersey team that's that's having a bad year and they've, they've sold a lot of people off, they've still been playing pretty well recently. And that was a really impressive game by the Penguins overall. I mean, they played the way they were playing earlier in the season when they were winning really impressively. They, they weren't giving up many odd man rushes. They seemed to play a smart game right up until, you know, Chris Letang knocked the stick out of that guy's hand, <laughs> which, you know, that, that was probably the one, the one play in the game where, you know, you kind of think, what, what, you know, what happened there? Um, but overall, I thought it was a really solid effort, and it was the, the exact type of way they needed to play, and they, they hadn't always been playing recently. So you'd like to think they can build on that. Um, but you know, until they string a couple of games like that together in a row, I think you're still in that uncertain phase where you're not really sure what team you're going to get on a given night. Gotcha. And since we have you in... I know a lot of your writing focuses more league-wide. I, I concentrate a lot very specifically, very narrowly on the Penguin stuff, and you, for your work, cast a broader net. And the one topic that is moving very rapidly that is just impossible to avoid at this point is the coronavirus situation and the league and how the teams are adapting and coping and what their plans are for this. And I don't know if you have any more insight than I do. It seems like basically they've just shut down the locker room media or moved the media back six to eight feet. Um, And just as we're taping this on Wednesday night, it looks like the governor of Ohio is going to enact rules, laws, whatever, 
to close the arena to fans on Thursday night for the Blue Jackets Pens game. So that's going to affect things. What do you where do you think this goes from here? Because it looks like this issue is growing and spreading rapidly and quickly, and it's going to be a huge disruption as far as you know, just normal life and especially life of big time pro sports where lots of people get together. Yeah, I think in the short term, it, sports are going to take a very dramatically different look. And uh, Columbus, you know, they've basically said all their home games until the the governor's orders is lifted are going to be closed to fans. San Jose is going to have the same thing going on. Um, I think it's only a matter of when and not if the entire league just says everybody plays behind closed doors. Um, we've already seen the NCAA say that the March Madness tournaments, both the men's and yeah. women's tournaments, are going to be played behind closed doors. Um, it, it, it's going to happen. And I, I, I think at this point there's two possible outcomes. Um, the first is they play every game behind closed doors. Or there may come a point where they just say the season stops now and they take some time, see if things get back to normal and start the playoffs after maybe a month or so um, where you, you give everything a chance to calm down. You give everybody a chance to, you know, kind of stay away from people and hope this, this starts to get things back to normal. But I, I don't see a scenario where business goes on with the status quo. I, I just don't see that happening. Number one, it's not, I don't think it's smart to continue on as it is. And number two, I think there's going to be so much outside pressure that there's no way the league is going to be able to say, you know what, we're just going to keep letting people in. I, I think very soon we're going to be seeing a lot of games played in front of empty buildings. Maybe every game played in front of an empty building for at least the foreseeable future. That is certainly wild just to think about, you know, a few months ago, you would have never guessed, but like this situation is just developing and changing and growing and very by the time, rapidly. Yeah. By the time this podcast is recorded, who knows, it could be, you know, what you were saying probably could right. be enacted by then. So yeah, it's just, I guess everyone's just kind of in wait and see mode to see how I the just, spreads are affected. And that makes it tough too. I still think the most likely outcome is games played in front of empty buildings. I think actually canceling games or canceling the season is an absolute last resort. I just, I can't see that happening at this point, but you know, I also didn't think we'd get to this point. So who knows where, where uh, the short term outlook is, but I, I think it's very likely that we're going to be seeing a lot of empty buildings uh, for these games uh, for the rest of the regular season. That, I think you're right on that, and that seems like as mu about as much as we can update or offer for right now, so we will just see how this continues to unfold. All right, everybody, we're back on the Pennsburg Pod. You can follow us at Pennsburg Pod, P-O-D, on Twitter. You can follow us just Pennsburg on Facebook, Pennsburg on Twitter, Adams at A-Gretz, G-R-E-T-Z, on Twitter, and that's where we are. Our, our next segment is our famous listener mailbag section, and thank you to everyone who wrote in this week for us. I will ask the first question to Adam, and we will take it from there. Our first question comes to us from Commander Kern, who says, of the teams behind the Penguins in the standings, who is the biggest threat? Well, I, I think you really have to keep an eye on the Islanders. 
um, because I know they've been going through a really bad funk right now, but they still have that ability, I think, to with their defense and if they get their goaltending right, they can still put some games or put some wins together. They're also a team that's pretty much closest to them in the standings, I think. Um, I mean, the Penguins have a pretty good gap between themselves and the wild card teams and the non wild card teams right now. So I don't know that there's a huge risk in them being caught by anyone, but I think the Islanders just pose that threat because they, you know, they, they've stayed close to them despite this recent slump. I think they're still within striking distance. I also think you have to keep an eye on Carolina because they have that ability to kind of get hot now too. They have uh, Peter Morazic coming back in the lineup to give them an actual NHL goaltender. And they have a ton of talent up front. Um, I'm not as concerned about Columbus simply because they have so few games remaining. The, the Penguins have a five-point gap on them with two games in hand. That is a huge advantage to have. Even if Columbus should happen to win Thursday's game, I still think the Penguins have a pretty sizable gap between them and, and enough time to, to make up any anything they lose here in a head-to-head matchup. So I think the Islanders and the Hurricanes are the two teams uh, you probably have to keep the most eye on of the ones behind them. The Rangers, uh, they've been a great story. They've stayed in it for, uh, I think, longer than anybody expected, but I just don't see them uh, being much of a factor come playoff time. So uh, our next question comes from Penn's Hen. Penn's Hen asks, just how far does gelling affect the overall performance of a team? I am asking because I'm very concerned about the way the Penguins have been playing lately, and I know what it's like to not get along with coworkers on a daily basis, but having to fake it and do your job. I should point out, we put out a call for these questions on Tuesday morning, like before the Jersey win, so that's why a lot of these are kind of like skewed negative and have like the overton of, of yeah, bad that, things. That, that was really bleak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A couple. Yeah. It, it was, we were talking people off the ledges this week, but um, I like this question because well, in the sense or in the vein that Jim Rutherford brought in four new guys at the all-star break, which to me, that that's a little more than I expected them to do. I mean, I know they needed the depth, and they've had such injuries that they wanted to, you know, fill out their roster. But I don't, I don't know if they don't dislike each other. Everyone has talked that this team has a good chemistry, and this team seems to enjoy each other's company and all that good stuff. But you know, everybody always says that. Um, I think the addition really of Patrick Marleau is a guy who he caught on in Toronto, and they loved him to death, and. He just seems like kind of that Chris Kunitz, Bill Guerin type of savvy veteran that everybody respects and likes because he's been around for so long. So I guess hopefully we'll see how all these pieces come together. But I think it's interesting because they did switch things up, switch in the mix of the room a little more when it comes to sending out Cahoon, bringing in a few guys. So that'll be interesting. Our next question comes to us from HockeyGuy66871. And this might be a quick answer, Adam, so if so, I have a follow-on question. <laughs> Who says, will Sullivan be fired if they lose the next two or three games? Uh, no. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I, I think the, depending on what happens the rest of this season and into the playoffs, I think that's a discussion that might be had, um, you know, like going into next season, maybe he'll be on the hot seat. But I... No. I mean, this isn't the Lou Lamarillo Devils here where somebody's going to get fired with 10 games left in the season. He's their coach. Uh, He's going to be their coach for the foreseeable future. 
Um, I, I cannot envision a scenario where he gets fired anytime soon here. Um, yeah, so no. <laughs> no, he, he's not going to be fired. Right, especially because it's Jim Rutherford pulling the trigger here, and he loves Mike Sullivan, I think, more than anyone. So my question to you was going to be, how many games would it take in a row for the Penguins to lose to get fired? And I think the answer is probably the rest of this year, right? Yeah, they'd have to go like on a massive like 10-game losing streak and, and actually miss the playoffs, I think, for that to happen. And I, I don't see either of those scenarios playing out. Our next question comes from Steven. Steven asks, can the Penguins fix what's broken in time for a playoff run, or should just, or should they just call up half of the Wilkes-Barre roster again as they seem to have the formula figured out? Yeah, <laughs> they were bleak questions. Uh, I mean, the Wilkes-Barre guys, they, did, they tried hard, but it's not like they were scoring goals. It's like guys like Brandon Tanev and Jared McCann were scoring more back then that aren't now, so... I think that kind of gets confused as what what was working back then that isn't working now. Um, can they fix the power play? That's a good question. I don't think anyone knows. Uh, I like the Mike Sullivan quote from the other day who said the answers are in this room. So it's going to be up to them to figure out what to do, how to do it. I do think this is one big area. They're missing Phil Kessel. He would carry the puck in into the zone for them a lot last year. Obviously, he's gone now. And whether it's Evgeny Malkin or Brian Rust or Chris Letang or Sidney Crosby, they just carry it to the blue line, get in, and then dump it off to the wall. And that everyone kind of has that scouted. I think Brian Rust tried it the other day, and it got intercepted and taken back for a shorthanded goal against. So hopefully they just – I mean, it's, it's simple, and if it's simple enough that we know it, I think the team knows it too, that they have to kind of dump pucks in more, work for them, go out, work somebody, win a battle, get Hornquist going a little bit. That's why he's there. So – can they fix it? I don't expect this power play to be really a great power play. I think it is what it is right now as far as like a top 10, top 15-ish type unit. But that's what we need. As as Adam, as you wrote the other day, that teams go on playoff runs all the time with that kind of power play. So, you know, you don't have to have a great power play in the playoffs. So. I remember that Boston team that won the Cup. I think they went the entire postseason like converting on 5% of their power play chances. And everybody kept talking about how you know, you can't win with it. Well, they did win with that. And I think that Rangers team that came back against the Penguins, that, that 3-1 team, yeah. in, uh, Dan Bilesman's last year, they went to the Stanley Cup final. Yeah. That team had a brutal power play, too. And they made it to the Stanley Cup final. So it is, I mean, penalties go down so much in the playoffs. It becomes a five-on-five game. You can get by with a weak power play. But that doesn't mean that you don't want to see it get better at some point. Totally. It can't help. Right, exactly. It can't it can't help. That is true. All right. Our next question comes to us from Frytime, who asks Oh, yeah, same or same kind of question, but we'll give it a go. The Penn's first power play unit has so much trouble just getting into the zone, let alone setting up. Why don't they try something different? Like maybe not a simple drop pass to someone coming up. You know, you, you kinda touched on what I was gonna say to this question in the last when I think that is the, the probably the one area they are missing Phil Kessel. Um, and, and I say that with the knowledge that Phil Kessel's had a very down year with the knowledge that he's probably not the player he was two or three years ago. And with the, the knowledge that, you know, that trade probably hasn't worked out as poorly as maybe we thought, or even it looked with Alex Galchenyuk struggles just because um, he has fallen off so much. 
So, you know, it, 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 sometimes it is about just knowing when to, to cut the cord on someone. And, and for as against that move as I was at the time, they may have known that. Having said that, they do miss his presence on the power play because he was great at gaining the zone. And he was the guy that that power play ran through a lot when he was here. And they don't really have anyone that replaced what he did. And... You know, it just, it's crazy to watch this power play with all of the talent they have on it and just how helpless it looks sometimes. It's not even that they are necessarily giving up chances or shorthanded goals, which they still do sometimes. It's just that they, they make it so easy for the other team to kill the penalty where it, 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 they just make the, the clears and, 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 and breaking up passes look so effortless against the Penguins, and it shouldn't be the case with the amount of talent that they have. I honestly don't even know where to begin trying to figure out what the fix is. Um, you know, you can talk about putting Justin Schultz at the point or taking Chris Letang off or moving people around a different spot. Nothing seems to work, and I just don't know what the fix is because you know this has been a, a thing now for you know a couple years now I mean the last year's power play wasn't great either and this one just seems to keep getting worse I don't know if it's having so much talent you think you can just show up and your talent's going to take over and you're going to beat the other team I don't know if it's a systematic thing I don't know if it's just playing smart and putting the puck on the net and crashing for rebounds I there's just so many things that seem to go wrong on any power play unit. Um, I, I just don't even know where to begin there. It, it's it's just something that's become maddening to watch. Even when they go on a stretch like they have recently where they've scored some goals, they just still look bad in the process of doing it. Um, so I, I, I just think that's that's the expectation you have to have with this unit right now, that it, it's it's going to struggle sometimes. So... I wish yeah. I had a better answer. <laughs> In the Phil Kessel trade, I was just thinking, remember the first thing Jim Rutherford tried to do was trade him to Minnesota for Jason Zucker. Could you imagine if that went down? Yeah. Well, that would have been a pretty positive trade for the Pens. Yeah. 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 I mean, Paul Fenton was, no wonder they fired him. That guy was not very good at his job. <laughs> Our next question comes from Skins and Pens, and they asked, do you think Nick Bukestad will be on the team next year? And that might also be another very quick answer. <laughs> Yeah, that's a quick answer. Um, I would think no, but the other the other flip side of that is if you're going to trade him, somebody's got to want to get him, and he's got a 4.1 million cap hit next year. He's big. He he is an NHL player, but he's coming off a year where he's going to probably play 13, 15 games this season. So, I mean, maybe the Pens try to move him, but I don't really know who's going to want to get that guy with a fairly sizable cap hit. So. We'll see. I mean, this time last year, a lot of people thought like Brian Rust would be gone because of the cap or something like that. So you never know what could happen. I would think that, yeah, they probably would move on if they could, but I don't know who was going to want them. I, I think any. I think we've seen in the NHL recently that any contract is tradable. And right. I, I think there's ways around getting a team to take on that. And, and it, it's a big salary cap hit for what he's done this year, but it's all, I think, does it expire after next season? Yes, it's, it's just, it's, it's just, just after one more year. So you might find a team that has some cap space or needs to get to the cap floor that might just say, hey, you know what? We'll take a chance that maybe this guy rebounds, 
fresh start, stay healthy. Like you said, he is an NHL player. Yeah, that just seems like the things that the Edmonton Oilers do is that they'll trade a bad guy, but they'll bring back a bad salary too. So, you know, somehow Ryan Strom or something will end up on, on the pens with like a three million hit. So I I don't know. I, I just assume personally, I mean, why not give Bukestad another chance to see if he can put it together in a contract year, even though players on contract years haven't exactly torn it up in Pittsburgh lately. But all right, we will try to end on a positive note from our buddy Cole Del Vecchio, who asks, what are the reasons for optimism right now? Well, I think the reason for optimism is that this team has a pretty sizable track record this season of playing the way they need to play. I mean, if you go back to what people were saying about this team 10 games ago, everybody was pretty optimistic. And I don't think you should let a 10-game you know, slump change your opinion that much especially when there are some signs that this could reverse um you know i don't think that i i think the goaltending is still very much a question right now simply because neither guy has taken the job and run with it but they both have the ability to do that they both have the potential to be that goalie and i don't think they're going to keep playing as poorly as they have been you know we're on about a four or five week stretch here where they both have a sub-900 save percentage. I think that's going to bounce back. I also think you're going to see some guys up front start to bounce back. Um, you know, this has been a pretty quiet stretch here for Sidney Crosby lately. He's not going to keep being that quiet. He, he's eventually going to, you know, go off here. And I, I think a lot of other players are kind of, you know, just in a stretch here where they've hit some slumps at the same time. And when you have pucks not going in the net for you, and every single mistake you make ends up in the back of your net, it's all going to multiply really fast, and you're just going to have everything go wrong at once. I, I, I still think there's a, enough here and enough evidence with this team to make you think they're going to get out of this and they're going to figure it out because, you know, they have about a, a 55 to 60-game sampling this year of being a Stanley Cup contender. They have about a 10-game sampling where they're not. I tend to trust the larger sampling – and we've seen that, that this team with these players has played the way they need to play. And I, I just, I can't help but think they're going to figure this out. That was very optimistic. Yeah. I, I like that. Um, thanks for joining us, Adam. We really appreciate it. I think we had a great show and I hope everyone will enjoy it and we'll stay safe and hopefully we'll get you on back again soon sometime. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. All right, everybody, thanks for joining us on the Pensburg Pod. We'll be back next week to talk about what happens in the future, and we'll be looking forward to it.